Well, let's turn now to God's word. We're going to read uh, the whole chapter, Genesis chapter uh, 22. And yes, we are going to look at the whole chapter a little bit later. Uh, But let's hear what God has to say to us uh, this morning through his holy and inerrant word. Uh, I will be reading, in case you're wondering, I'll be reading from the NIV, which I think is different from the Pew Bibles. Let's hear God's word. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abram got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abram looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants 
and they set off together for Beersheba and Abram stayed in Beersheba. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother, Nahor. Uz, the firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, uh, Jildlap, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother, Nahor. His concubine whose name was Rumah, also had sons, Teba, Geham, Tahash, and Ma'aka. Well, just as we come now uh, to look at God's word, let's again pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as we've just sung, that you would break uh, your, the bread of life, your word to us, Lord, we pray indeed that you would help us to see within your word that which is of great uh, importance to our lives. Lord, we thank you that your word is sufficient uh, for everything we are to understand of you and what you have done and how we are to live before you, how we are to be right before you. Pray you would open our eyes, Lord, to see the truths of your word afresh this morning. Without your word we cannot understand anything. With your word we can understand that which is of vital importance for our lives, for our walk before you. We pray that you would help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now in, um, in Rugby Union, I'm not sure how many of you here... Uh, understand or played rugby union, not rugby league, but rugby union. Well, in rugby union, at least um, when I used to play it in school uh, many, many years ago, over 50 years ago now. Well, in rugby union, there's a position called blindside flanker. Not sure if it's called that today, but that's what it was in my day. Blindside flanker. Uh, as some of you may know of that uh, position. So what's that position's role? What's its purpose? Uh, within the rugby team. Well, amongst other things, a blindside flanker is part of the back row of the scrum, but on the, the narrow side, nearest to the touchline, which is called the blindside. So he's not in the wider part, where the, most of the field is, but he's near to the touchline, or the blindside. So his job, the blindside flanker's job, is specifically to ensure that the opposing scrum half doesn't pull a fast one by sneaking around this blind side and getting into open space away from all the opposition's back line. You see, the blind side, the blind side is where things come from which are unexpected or surprising or even shocking. Now, in Genesis chapter uh, 22, uh, Abraham, and we too, I think, are blindsided, so to speak, by God. For it's all so unexpected, isn't it? It's all so surprising. It's all so shocking, if truth be told. And we just don't see it coming, do we? Of course, this unexpectedness of what God asks of Abraham... To sacrifice his own son 
his only son, as a burnt offering on a mountain in the region of Moriah. Well, this leads to some very strange but totally incorrect interpretations. For example, some say that God is rebuking Abraham for loving Isaac more than God himself. But the text doesn't say that. Others think that this is only Abraham thinking it in a pagan sort of way. In other words, it's not God who asked Abraham uh, to do this, but only the pressure to conform which Abraham himself faces and feels as he lives within a cruel and, and sadistic and, and brutal culture uh, within the land of Canaan. But again, the text doesn't say that either. So what then? What then is this unexpected story all about? Well, I'm going to break with tradition and we're going to deal with this under four headings this morning. Four headings, not three. First, the painful perplexity which God sometimes brings into our lives. Second, the trusting obedience of Abraham. Third, the timely provision of a substitute from God. And fourth, the stark fragility of Abraham's line. So let's look at those four things <coughs> in turn. <coughs> Firstly then, the painful perplexity which God sometimes brings into our lives. Uh, this is seen, if you have your Bibles open in front of you, that would be good. And this is seen particularly in Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2, the first two verses. Now Abraham is clearly, I think, surprised by God's request for him to sacrifice his son upon a mountain in the region of Moriah. And we are just as surprised too. For where did this, where did this request from God come from? For it seems to be so, so out of character of God, doesn't it? For God, it's so out of character. And it also seems to contradict all that we read that happens within the, within the past ten or more chapters of Genesis as we wait for the arrival of this son Isaac. He's been long expected, this promised son. You see, God's command in verse 2, Genesis 22 verse 2, actually seems to fly in the face of God's promise that through Abraham's son Isaac, God would bring blessing to the, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. So is God, in this request to Abraham, is he contradicting his own word? Is it? For it does appear, at least on the surface, it does appear that way. It all seems so absurd. It all seems so contradictory. We've been blindsided, so to speak. Where did this come from? However, even worse is the emotional turmoil which this command from God brings to Abraham himself. We see this in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, 
whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there. It's as if a knife goes in deeper and deeper with every phrase which God uses. Take your son, take your only son, take the son whom you love, take Isaac. You see it? In fact, there's a similarity here with Genesis chapter 12. Where Abraham was commanded by God to forsake his own family and go to an unknown destination. Whereas here, Abraham is commanded to go to an unknown mountain and forsake his own son. All seems so absurd, doesn't it? And the emotional distress felt by Abraham, well it is truly tangible, isn't it? Of course, we also face situations which don't seem to tie up with God's character. In other words, God seems to be taking us through circumstances where we struggle to know him as a refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 46 verse 1. For the mess which God is taking us through doesn't make sense to us, does it? It's all so painful. <coughs> it's all so, so perplexing. <coughs> and God's ways even seem to contradict the assurances of his own words. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> In fact, the reality is, isn't it? It doesn't matter how much theology we know. And it doesn't matter how that we may be personal friends with, I don't know, John Piper or Tim Keller or Don Carson or whoever. For we still feel it, don't we? For God's ways can often be painfully perplexing. If we're honest, we don't understand why. I suppose another example is Jesus himself with Martha, uh, Mary and Lazarus in John chapter 11. In verse 5 we read, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And yet, in the very next verse, in verse 6, we immediately discover that Jesus stayed two days longer where he was when he heard that Lazarus was seriously ill. Now that seems a very strange way to express your love, doesn't it? Perplexing. Must have been perplexing to Martha and Mary. In fact, we see that later on in the story. <coughs> Instead, indeed, Paul hits the proverbial nail on the head, doesn't he? When he writes in Romans 12, verse 33, How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. For sometimes, God brings painful perplexity into our lives. And as a result, there seems to be a conflict between God's way and God's word. Secondly, let's look now at the trusting obedience of Abraham. And this is seen in the following verses, verses 3 to 8, if you have your Bible open in front of you. Now, on first reading, these verses are a little bit 
tantalising, aren't they? They're a little bit unrevealing. For they, all they actually do, these verses, all they actually do is describe what Abraham did. And nothing more. In other words, there's no description here in these verses of how Abraham felt during this time. There's no description of the emotions churning through Abraham's heart and mind. There's no mention of any anguish which Abraham may have been experiencing. No. It's all so matter of fact, isn't it? Abraham rose early. Abraham saddled his donkey. And Abraham went to the place God had told him to go. But that's the point, you see. For Abraham... Well, Abraham is simply being obedient, isn't he, to what God has said. Abraham obeyed God. Simple as that. Now, I am not saying that Abraham didn't feel anything. Of course he did. For this was his long-promised son. Indeed, as we've already been told, this was the son whom Abraham loved. This was Isaac. Isaac, God's amazing and wonderful gift to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. So of course Abraham was in emotional turmoil. There is no question about that. Yet he still simply obeyed what God had told him to do. And actually that's the point of these verses. However, there's more. There's more. For how is Abraham, well, how is he actually able to do this? If you put yourself in Abraham's shoes, could you have done that? Could you? How is Abraham (coughs) able to do this? What helps Abraham in his obedience? What sustains Abraham, as it were? Well, look at verse 5. Genesis 22, verse 5. This is quite phenomenal. This is amazing. Verse 5. Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we, notice that, then we will come back to you. We. You see, Abraham knew God, didn't he? (coughs) Abraham had experienced God's consistent faithfulness in his own life over many years. For Abraham has seen God give him a son in his old age, out of the deadness of his own wife's womb. And if God had done that, if God had done that once, he could do even more than that now. In other words, Abraham trusted God that he would bring both Abraham and his son back from the mountain. Therefore, Abraham's obedience was based upon faith. It was a trusting obedience. Which is why we read in in Hebrews 11, verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And it's this trust in God which sustains Abraham throughout This harrowing ordeal. We see this reading again in in Genesis 22 verse 8. Look at this verse. This is another phenomenal verse. Genesis 22 verse (coughs) 8. We can picture the scene, can't we? Isaac, this young man, 
is going through in his mind what they have for the sacrifice. Just see it, can't you? And he's there thinking, yes, there's fire. Yes, there's wood. But where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where's the burnt offering itself? So he asks his father a perfectly natural question. Where is it? However, Abraham's reply to that perfectly natural question is stunning, isn't it? Verse 8. <coughs> Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide. Actually, God will see to it. It is the more literal translation. God will see to it. God will sort it out. He trusts God. You see, in the words of one commentator, Abraham's response to his son combines complete certainty about God. Complete certainty about God with complete openness as to detail. Do you see it? Certain of God, his character, his grace, his love, his sovereignty. But totally open as to the details of how God will sort it out. God will sort it out. God will see to it. It's right, isn't it? Or in the words of another commentator, Abraham is sure of God. He's not so sure of God's method. Of how God will do it. In other words, we're back, aren't we, to Genesis 18, verse 25. A wonderful verse. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? For Abraham is resting upon the bedrock of God's justice. And so Abraham obeys. Despite the anguish, despite the perplexity, despite not knowing how God will work it all out, how God will see to it, Despite all the apparent contradiction between God's ways and God's word, Abraham trusts God. And so Abraham obeys God. And as a result, the two men, Abraham and Isaac, both continue to plod up the mountain. And that is a lesson we all need to take on board. For though we find sometimes, sometimes many times, we find perplexity, don't we? A perplexity in God's ways. Yet God is always, always trustworthy. Therefore we are to faithfully obey him in all things. Yes, his judgments are unsearchable. Yes, his paths are beyond tracing out. But nevertheless, God is utterly righteous. Therefore, we can trust him, can't we? And that's the pathway which we often have to walk before him within this world. A pathway of trusting obedience. Just like Abraham of old. That's a lesson we need to learn, isn't it? Whatever happens, we can trust God. Thirdly, let's look now at the timely provision of a substitute from God. Uh, this is seen in verses 9 through to 14, verses 9 to 14. 
Now verses 9 and 10, if you look at them, they, they are quite tense, aren't they? For Moses, the author of this uh, book of Genesis, he is building up the tension of the narrative, isn't he? That's what he's doing. For they reach the place of sacrifice. Abraham builds the altar. Abraham arranges the wood on it. Abraham binds Isaac. Abraham places Isaac upon the altar. Abraham reaches out his hand. Abraham takes hold of the knife. The build-up and the strain is becoming unbearable, isn't it? You can see it, can't you, in your eyes, what's happening? In fact, it's very much like the place in a film where you want to pause it in order to release the tension. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm often in that. It's so tense that I need to stop the film. can't cope. It's a bit like that here. The, the tension is building up. But then... God suddenly intervenes, verses 11 and 12, and God is satisfied, isn't he? For the sacrifice has effectively been made. Verse 12, Abraham has not withheld his own son from God. It's enough. God is satisfied. Now at this point, God does something which is of vital relevance to, to the, the whole storyline of the Bible. The Bible storyline as a whole. It is of vital importance for God provides, doesn't he, in this story, a substitute for Isaac. God provides a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. He provides a ram to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac as a substitute for Isaac. You see, this is actually the very first picture of a truth which is repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament and which is ultimately fulfilled in the death of Jesus upon a cross. In other words, the ram, the ram, not so much Isaac, but the ram here is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. For Jesus Christ is God's ultimate provision of a substitute who came to die in our place for our sins. Indeed, let me give you some more examples uh, from the uh, Bible, from the Old Testament. Uh, some more examples of this vital truth which is repeated again and again. Consider firstly Exodus 12, chapter 12. Now within this chapter we have the Passover lamb which was killed and its blood was daubed on the doorposts and the lintel of the Israelite houses within Egypt. So as the Lord passes over those houses in judgment, the firstborn in those houses, covered as it were uh, by the blood of the Lamb, the firstborn are spared. So this is another picture, isn't it, of substitution for the Lamb dies. Not in the place of Isaac this time, no, but in the place of the firstborn, the lamb dies. And this story of the Passover also carries with it the truth of God's anger being turned away and of being satisfied by the blood of the lamb. So it adds to the truth. A second example is found in Isaiah chapter 53. Now this chapter is part of a prophecy concerning a future servant of the Lord who is Jesus Christ himself. And in Isaiah 53 verse 7 we read, 
of this servant of the Lord. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so so he did not open his mouth. And back in verse 5 of that chapter we read, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Do you see it? In other words, the suffering servant of the Lord is pictured here as a lamb provided by God himself who will deal with and who will take away uh, our sins. How? How will he do that? By dying in our place as a substitute under God's judgment against our sins. It's another picture of a lamb being a substitute. So no wonder John the Baptist in John 1 verse 29 says as he looks at Jesus. What does he say? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God provides a ram in place of Isaac. And God provides Jesus to die in our place. Under God's judgment against our sin. However, there's another. There's another striking illustration within this story which we mustn't miss. For notice again, look now at verse 12, Genesis 22 verse 12. Uh, God says to Abraham, now I know that you fear God because. And these are the words to notice. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You see that word withheld? Well, it's actually the very same word, or at least in the old Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. uh, It's the very same word which Paul uses in Romans 8 verse 32. Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 32, God did not spare That's the word. God did not spare. God did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, what God kept Abraham from doing at the very last moment, true, what God kept Abraham from doing, he himself did. God did not spare his own son, did he? Isn't that amazing? Abraham's son Isaac was spared at the last moment, but God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, his people. Catherine Luther. Uh, Martin Luther's wife, when Martin Luther was reading through uh, Genesis chapter 22 to her, uh, Catherine Luther exclaimed at one point, I do not believe it. God would not have treated his son like that. Luther turned to his wife and said, but Katie, he did. He did. Fourthly, finally, the stark fragility of Abraham's line. This is where we come to those concluding verses of the chapter, verses 15 right through to 24. The stark fragility 
of Abraham's line. Now, in verses 15 to 19, God, because of Abraham's obedience, God repeats his covenant promises to Abraham, which have been brought to us back in chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17 of this book of Genesis. God repeats his covenant promises to Abraham, for God will give to Abraham people and a place and his presence and protection and a purpose. What's the purpose? To bring through his offspring blessing to all nations on earth. See that in verse 18, don't we? However, then we get to verses 20 to 24. This seemingly dull account of the many children born to Abraham's brother Nahor. Twelve sons in total. And somebody who's reading through the Bible, as I did, it's a bit of a nightmare. Can you get all the words right? They're tongue twisters, some of them. But it's quite dull, isn't it? So what's it all about? What's these verses, 20 to 24, what are they all about? Of course, in some sense, these verses simply introduce to us Rebecca, don't they? Nahor's granddaughter, Isaac's future wife. But is there anything more to these verses than just that? Is there? Well, I think there is something more. You see, I believe Moses is highlighting here for us a contrast between Abraham on the one hand and Nahor, his brother, on the other hand. For Abraham, remember, has only one son, Isaac. Who actually nearly got sacrificed as a burnt offering on a mountain within Moriah. Wow, he would have had no sons then. Whereas Nahor has a grand total of 12 sons. Eight from his wife, four from his concubine. So God's chosen line through Abraham... Well, it appears weak, doesn't it? And it appears flimsy and it appears unimpressive. Whereas the non-promise line, if I can put it in that way, well, it appears robust, doesn't it? It appears strong. It really appears extremely impressive, doesn't it? Twelve sons. But there's a difference, isn't there? A big difference. For God is working his purposes out through the stark fragility of Abraham's line, not Nahor's. That's the difference. And this too is a truth which is repeated, like substitution is repeated through the Bible. These truths are repeated again and again, aren't they? And this truth is also repeated again and again throughout the Bible. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds. Yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that birds come and perch in its branches. It's the same truth, isn't it? But what an encouragement that is for us today. In 21st century Britain, what an encouragement that is. Yes, often the kingdom of God can look fragile and unimpressive. 
compared with all around it within this world. Yes, as the Church of God, we feel, we ourselves feel, don't we, our own weakness and our own lack of ability. Yes, in the world's eyes, we are pretty much helpless and hopeless, aren't we? In fact, we're just like mustard seed, smallest of seeds. However, the truth is, God is working. God is working through us. God is building his church. God is growing his kingdom. God is. Colossians 1 verse 6, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. In other words, that mustard seed is truly growing into a large tree. So be encouraged. God is at work. And God uses the insignificant. God uses the fragile. God uses the unimpressive. Just like Isaac. Just like you and me. God uses the insignificant and the fragile for his purposes of grace within this world. Be encouraged. Well, may he have all the glory, for he is worthy. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this wonderful story uh, in the Bible. We thank you that you have placed this story in your word. And thank you for all the truths that it reveals to us. Above all, it reveals to us the need of a substitute. And we thank you that Jesus, your son, is our substitute. He is our representative. He is altogether lovely. And we give you our praise in his name. Amen.